0: guest today is part of a groundswell of political change in the uk the fourth generation chief executive of a family business which smokes salmon in london's east end he's lance foreman of h foreman and son and brexit party candidate for the london area his campaign hasn't been without some unpleasantness A giant swastika was daubed on his premises, something which he says is aided and abetted by clumsy rhetoric from the political class.
1: Disagreeing with somebody about a bloody customs union or a single market is not Nazism, and I think the thing has got completely out of hand now, you know, when you have people like David Lammy sort of just throwing around this word Nazi, you know, it is just outrageous.
0: Now, if you like my regular podcasts, please think about making a donation. My podcasts are free and I want to keep them free, and donations really help me keep them that way. Head over to my donations page at www.patreon.com slash johnnygould. A qualified accountant and expert smoker of salmon, Lance heads down to the factory floor each morning and samples a soupçon of salmon. Over the years, he estimates he's eaten three times his body weight, In this food from the heavens, think of the man from Del Monte, but with slightly oilier lips. (laughs) H. Foreman & Sons is the last surviving East End smokehouse, which he says is down to more luck than judgment. As others fell to market forces and subsidies, his family stuck to their traditional and unique ways without trying to compete on price or in lesser quality. The factory stands in the shadow of the Olympic Stadium, now home of West Ham United, a testimony to a combination of innovation and modernization. Not only is there a substantial factory floor with fish hanging up and laid flat, but also a 70-seat restaurant and conference venue. The place is pungent with the smell of smoked salmon, but not the offices, where I sat down with Lance for a conversation about the unique experience of sustaining and growing a family business, which may be about to help propel him into becoming a professional politician, Lance Foreman delighted. We're here today. Here we are in the uh, splendid Fish Island location of H Foreman and Sons. The nearest building to the Olympic Stadium, now the home of um, three points for away teams, West Ham United. <laughs> Absolutely, there are there are neighbours now. Good old West Ham. They did uh, they did joke
1: with me before they moved here that they might have to um, call themselves West Salmon instead of West Ham. And uh, I said as long as it's not John West Salmon, that'll be fine. That'll be
0: fine, yeah. I'm forever smoking salmon. <laughs> pinky salmon in the air. You got it. <laughs> now, you are the fourth generation uh, foreman to run this business. It yes. was your great-grandfather who came from Odessa mm-hmm. to set this business up in 1905. This is quite a journey.
1: It is. I mean, four, four generations in business is quite unusual. Family businesses often self-destruct in the third generation. So we're not quite sure what happens now, whether the, uh, the the cycle starts again or the decline carries on, but uh, but time will tell. But no, we we we've been based in London's East End for 115 years now, and uh, and going strongly, thank goodness.
0: So in a sense, smoking salmon is something which has steadily gone up market, but also become more mainstream too, hasn't it?
1: Uh, uh, absolutely, and we're we're very fortunate uh, in a way that. Um, over the last 20 years or so, British consumers have become much more interested in food provenance you know, and how food is made, and I think a lot of that was stimulated by food TV over the last 15 to 20 years. Because if you go back to the mid-1970s or even early 80s, most of the salmon smoking in Britain was going on in the east end of London. It was an East European Jewish uh, tradition that came over here 100 years ago, and, and right the way through the 20th century, it was all happening in the East End. When salmon farming started in the sort of 70s and 80s, that's when the industry changed. That's when you started to see these huge sort of factories springing up around, particularly Scotland, but other parts of the country, grant funded um, by the government, often through the EU. Um, and, and what happened was all these traditional smokehouses in East London tried to compete with this new business. They couldn't compete, obviously with London wages and London overheads, much more expensive to operate. And they all went out of business. And we didn't try and compete, and I'm not saying that was strategy. It was perhaps more luck than strategy. My father at that stage didn't know whether I was going to join the business and why invest further if he didn't know if there was going to be a future. And we just carried on, carried on doing things in our very traditional, old-fashioned way. And we're the last surviving of those original smokehouses. And we do it in the old-fashioned way, not because we just love tradition... The product just tastes a million times better. We, uh, we were awarded a protected food status uh, by the EU um, about 18 months ago, um, which made Britain, or put London Cure on the same status as champagne and gorgonzola and Parma Ham. And we were the first ever London-based food or drink to have protected food status.
0: From the EU? From our friends at the EU. Thanks a lot, EU. I'm going to stand as a Brexit Party candidate. <laughs> Well, perhaps they should be thanking us for
1: putting this great food on the map. You know, we've been going for 115 years, much longer than the EU has been going. You know, we've been making this product before the EU came into being, and I'm sure we will be making London Curse Milk Salmon long after the EU ceases to exist. We as a business have been through many crises. Literally five years after I joined the business, we had a fire which burnt down three quarters of the factory. We completely refurbished the place where we have been for 40 years, um following the fire within a year of the fire the local river overflowed and our whole newly refurbished factory was a meter underwater we then had to relocate because the fabric of the building had been infiltrated with dirty flood water Um, so we spent two years looking for somewhere to relocate to we built this fantastic new factory with grant funding from the london development agency within a year of moving in they said oh by the way you've got to move out because that's where we want to build the olympic stadium So if I would have, you know, come into the business and built a business plan, I would never have written into that business plan that we were going to have these three catastrophic events. Twenty minutes
0: to five, we can now say the decision taken in 1975 by this country to join the common market has been reversed uh, to leave the EU. There is no way that the Remain side can win. And that's the uh, result of this referendum. The British people have spoken, and the answer is... We're out.
1: I think this is one of the best opportunities that Britain has had in 40 years to reinvent ourselves. Incremental change is happening every single day of our lives. We don't notice it because it's very small change. But after 20 years, you look back and you think, God, how did I get into this rut? And it's because of the build-up of these petty little changes day after day. But when big change is forced upon you, like it was with us with the fire and the flood, it throws you off that treadmill. It throws you back. It allows you to sort of reevaluate your whole life situation and sort of say, well, let's get rid of all the crap. Let's seize the good stuff and move forward. I, I think the biggest problem that we have in this country isn't Brexit. I think it's housing um, and, and the planning regulation. And I learned so much about that during my battles over the Olympics. And learn how ridiculous planning is and, and you just look at um, you know you look at something like the, uh, the third runway in London now our politicians have taken 40 years not to make a decision, they still haven't made a decision after 40 yeah. years, the worst decision of all is not making a decision just make a bloody decision and get on with it and you'll you know deal with the positives, you'll deal with the negatives, you know t- take advantage of the positives, deal with the negatives, but get on and make decisions. But politicians in this country are just afraid of making decisions because they're worried about whether they're going to upset people and lose votes.
0: Housing is not a problem in West Bromwich or Middlesbrough right. or uh, Kent or Eastbourne or anywhere pretty much outside London and even most parts of the South East. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is wealth in the middle class in normal people living in normal postcodes seven or eight miles out of the West End and the city who are seriously wealthy in a way that their parents weren't at the expense of of everyone else in the country.
1: But are you saying they're seriously wealthy because of the value of their homes?
0: Amongst other things. The fact is that the, the brain drain of which I am part of, it's not even spoken about anymore because it's game, set and match. I couldn't possibly exist uh, in the way I did in Birmingham with the opportunities that were availed to me there. Uh, I've come to London. I always wanted to because I wanted to be a national broadcaster. Yeah. But other things have gone uh, with it along the way. This has been a marvellous workshop for me.
1: Well, it has, but you know, I, I was in Birmingham um, last was it October for the Conservative Party conference. I hadn't been to Birmingham for years. I was so impressed. Birmingham's with all the, not the problem.
0: Uh, West Brom and Dudley and Walsall and Wolverhampton are the problem. Birmingham's fine, but Birmingham and Manchester are, are the islands of comparative prosperity in areas like, say, Blackburn, Chaverton, and then you go to West Bromwich and Dudley, and then you go to places like UKIP, uh, Brexit Party strongholds like Kent. Yes. Right. They are poor... And they are but finished, the, and they the, need help.
1: Yeah, these are the natural ebbs and flows of the market. Though some they're places not there, rise, are they? no, well, they are. Some places rise, other places they're not. They've
0: got no chance. You know, well, they've the, got no chance, Lance. Well, that's the problem. Yeah, well, and,
1: you know, and and some places, some places will thrive, and some places will die. And that's you know that is that is a natural phenomenon. You but we need to
0: be more of a one nation.
1: Well, we are one nation, but you know, you know, some. You might find some business person will see an opportunity because once something becomes so depressed, it becomes cheaper. And he'll think, oh, actually, this is a really interesting opportunity to invest in this place because the, the land is cheap, the, the real estate is cheap. I can get labor here that, you know, people really want to work. That's how the market works. When you artificially channel government money into a place just because you're trying to save it... That just, you know, that doesn't work. It's, you know, you're working against the sort of natural desire of the, uh, of the economy itself. So I think you have to let the market decide. And yeah, people do want to be in London, but if London does become too expensive, people will see it as an opportunity to, to move outside. And this is not just on a, a local scale, even a national scale. You know, this is on a, you know, on a global scale, on a European-wide scale. And for me, again, it comes back to that, uh, that single currency. You have to let the market find its own balance.
0: But you once said, didn't you? Moving from oily fish to politics seemed pretty natural, but I don't think I will. <laughs> so then someone must have wound you up along the way to get into politics.
1: Um, I sort of got drawn back into local politics during the Olympics um, because of the, the, the battle over the... Um, the relocation of our factory and the way we were so badly treated by Ken Livingstone. And we were one of 350 businesses that were forcibly evicted. So I became the the, the main spokesman for all those 350 businesses. That sort of drew me back into yeah. local politics. I've, I have serious worries about the future direction of Europe. Getting involved in the Brexit party itself... Um, was not something I planned. I mean, it's it's a relatively new party anyway. Uh, But the clincher for me and my red line was crossed when Theresa May invited Jeremy Corbyn into Number 10 Downing Street. People talk about the sort of Brexit that there is going to be. Is it hard, soft? Is it grey, white? Actually, we want a red, white and blue Brexit. That is the right Brexit for the United Kingdom, the right deal for the United Kingdom. I'm ambitious for what we can achieve because I believe that a deal that is right for the the United Kingdom will also be a deal that is right for the European Union. For me, that was a serious problem. Very serious concern with, with Corbyn on two grounds. First of all, because... He's a Marxist. He, his idea of Britain is uh, is Venezuela, um, and um, and B because of anti semitism in the Labour Party, and he's allowed that to fester. I believe he is an anti semite, and obviously as somebody Jewish, um, I, I can't tolerate that. And I just felt that by inviting him to Number Ten, you know, having said that he's unfit to lead this country, you are giving him such credibility, and I just couldn't understand why Theresa May or the Conservative Party could allow that and I just felt you know this is the time to stand up because if we don't do it now we're accepting the possibility of Corbyn.
0: Lance um, one of the other unfortunate headlines of your candidacy or the period at least of your candidacy was that huge horrible swastika emblazoned on your shutters while you were away how does that make you feel?
1: Well it was it was pretty horrific actually um I, I was on a business trip in the USA. Plane lands. turned my phone on, and I phoned my office. And they, and my office said, uh, Lance, got some bad news. You want to believe this? There's a 30 foot swastika on your build, you know, on our building. It was pretty horrible. As I said to you, m- my dad is a Holocaust survivor. He was born in Poland. Uh, the war broke out when he was five. He, you know, he had uncles that were literally shot and murdered in his town square purely. Because they were Jewish, no other reason. He had uncles uh, and relatives that were gassed in Auschwitz. He was taken as a prisoner with his three-year-old sister. They were put on a cattle truck, six-week journey. Many people never survived that journey because they were literally treated like cattle. Once a day, they'd have a bucket of slop, you know, for people to share amongst them. No toilet facilities. Just literally treated like cattle. Took on the six, taken on the six-month, journey, uh, six-week journey to Siberia. Um, and literally had to fend for themselves in the forests uh, of Siberia, Um, came over to Britain as an orphan after the war. And when people throw around the word Nazi and racist, they have no idea, and it really cheapens what Nazism is really about. That was Nazism. Disagreeing with somebody about a bloody customs union or a single market, is not Nazism. And I think the thing has got completely out of hand now, you know, when you have people like David Lammy sort of, just throwing around this word Nazi, you know, it is just outrageous. Not only does it cheapen it, but this is where our politics is going wrong. There is so little respect left nowadays. And if politicians will not respect the vote of the people on Brexit, why would people respect other people? And that's where I believe it's all gone horribly wrong. In the last few years since the Brexit vote, you know, politicians made promises and they are cynically undermining this thing. And all respect has gone out of politics now. And people are throwing around these phrases and it's getting very nasty. And I think that's why a lot of people like me, just normal people from all sorts of walks of life, in business, academia and so on, are sort of saying, it's enough now. If the politicians can't sort this out, we are going to step in and take control of this thing, and that's why I think the Brexit Party is doing so well.
0: I think it's important for us to say that a piece of violent graffiti can never be excused for your political allegiances. I've seen some pretty scurrilous connections, as though it was some sort of oh well, you know, it's done for the Brexit Party.
1: Yeah, well, it's the whole thing is sort of quite ironic
0: uh, to use a. Well, you, you don't is, have any. Uh, Corbyn, sense I, of life. No, I don't have any sense. Even though I'm, you've lived here most of your life.
1: Well, I've lived here all my life. But um, so all
0: he did say all of your life. <laughs> he did, to be
1: fair. <laughs> but um, but I, I think what's happened here is actually quite ironic because the the, the instance sort of the feeling is oh my god this is an anti-Semitic anti-Semitic attack. There's this Jewish businessman in East London. His profile's rising because of what's going on. Maybe he's being targeted. Actually, we. We're pretty sure we know what's happened because uh, there have been some informants, OK? So we're in an area where there are a lot of graffiti artists. You know, this is graffiti city around here. And um, I think what, uh, what we have is um, some very angry young graffiti artists, sort of, you know, Extinction Rebellion types, automatically assume that if I'm standing for the Brexit party, I must be a Nazi, I must be a racist, Um They've daubed this 30-foot swastika on my building. I would guess perhaps the largest swastika that's ever been daubed on a building in London or the UK. Um, And they put this thing on my building. And some of their friends, you know, having seen them... So there's been this little bit of a media outrage. Not that much, but there's been a bit of a media outrage. um, And they've seen that actually they've put a swastika on the the building of, you know, a a Holocaust survivor's family. And it's made them out to look like the racist rather than me. And so they are horrified and have come forward and sort of, you know, not apologised anyway, but sort of said, you know, these are the people that did it.
0: Lance, a lot of Brexiteers call this a betrayal of democracy. Wasn't parliamentary democracy always a bit like that, making their own decisions once they were elected?
1: Possibly, but not in the same way that, uh, you know, this has been handled. I mean, this was the largest democratic turnout the country's ever seen Um, and people, you know, people felt very passionately uh, about Europe and they they, they really felt, you know, 17.5 million people, that's a lot of people to come out uh, and vote for something and they believed that their vote, you know, would be, you know, followed through with. And uh, all the politicians from Cameron, every single politician on every side said, you know, we will, you know, this is not a never this is a referendum, and your vote will be, uh, you know, this is a one-off, your vote will be followed through with, and so on and so forth. And nobody, you know, they keep saying the facts have changed. The only fact that people weren't aware of was that the politicians would take the vote and disregard it. What this election about is about is not Europe anymore. It's about democracy. I was talking to one of my, I have an 18 year old daughter, talking to some of her friends, you know, and of course everybody's expecting young people are going to be supporting, you know, anything on the Remain side. And this girl was saying to me that actually a lot of her friends are going to be voting for the Brexit Party because they're told at school the importance of democracy. So I was completely taken aback and um, I, I think people are going to be very surprised on the
0: uh, 23rd of May. How difficult a choice has that been? Where do you see your support for Brexit? Is this a rejection of European history? Or a feeling that British values need to be reinforced? You talk about the gentle erosion, the daily petty little changes, and that maybe among that, British values have been eroded along the way too in this Mm -hmm. 40 years.
1: Well, I I don't think British values are the same as continental values. Um, And and the way we approach law is very different. You know, the Anglo-Saxon approach uh, is very different to uh, the continental European approach.
0: Um, If I was to summarise that, Napoleonic law is you have to ask for permission. Absolutely, Whereas here in Britain, you do it and then see if anyone has a problem.
1: You're absolutely right. You know, what you have now in Europe is this federal approach... and. Basically, they want, to, they want to build an empire. They want to build an empire across Europe. And people are rejecting it, you know, because empires quash sort of uh, culture, tri- sort of tribalism, you could call it. Um, and, and ultimately, they always fail, and they always end in chaos. And it doesn't matter if it's Yugoslavia or the Soviet Union, or you go back in time to the Romans and the Greeks and so on, Austro-Hungarian Empire. They, you know, you cannot control people... Uh, On on that scale, unless those people come together themselves over hundreds of years. Uh, And so, you know, I I believe that the best way for countries to thrive is to have nation states competing with one one another, liberal democracies. Now, liberal democracies never declare war against other liberal democracies. It never happens. Uh, And we should trade with each other, and competition between countries is the best way for them to thrive and to innovate, and you learn from what other countries are doing, and then you do the same, and that's just a far better way of doing things. Now, my main reason... For wanting to leave the EU is nothing to do with the bureaucracy. Actually, I mean, I was often quoted on sort of you know business-related things, and uh, it's not—it's certainly not about immigration because I don't really have any issues with immigration at all. Um, I think that's a management issue, it's not about you know foreigners at all. Um, my, my issue is that I'm very, very worried about the future direction of Europe. Um, part of this empire building and, and the, the main feature of it is the single currency. Right. And, so it, and this is not a new thing. This is something I've believed strongly since the fir- single currency first came into, into being because I've always believed that economics trumps politics. You know, the Soviet Union didn't collapse because of the communist philosophy. It collapsed because there were bread queues and people were starving. That's why it collapsed. And, and in Europe... You have a single currency, which is, you know, you cannot have one currency that is relevant to every single economy that has its own economic cycles. And so the only way you can keep things in balance, if you haven't got the ability to float the exchange rate um, to to regulate between, you Mm know, um, stronger and weaker economic cycles, is to have massive transfers of wealth. And the problem with that is that it creates a dependency culture there's no incentive for the poorer countries to do particularly well because they're getting the handouts from the the richer donor countries. And the problem with that is that when you get a downturn in the economy of the the wealthier donor country, then the people in that country start saying, well, hang on a second, why are we donating all this money to these other countries when, you know, we work really hard and they take three siestas and so on? And if we're going to make this, you know, make these payments, we're going to have to start laying down much stricter rules. And maybe even in, you know, Uh, implement sort of new leaders into their countries like they did in Greece and Italy and so on. And the problem with that is that that then creates resentment because the recipient says, well hang on a second, we didn't sign up for these rules. Resentment leads to extremism and if you look at Europe now, you have more extremism on the left and the right than you've had at any time since the end of the Second World War and ultimately I believe the single currency will end in chaos and what all of you know, everyone always says to me, Oh yeah, but Britain's not in the single currency, so why should we worry? And the problem is that when Europe ends up in chaos, we get dragged into it by the gravitational pull of this thing mm-hmm. and we will end up having to sort out the mess in Europe again. And for me, Brexit was about helping to dismantle the project peacefully before it goes too far and just you know gets too close to this chaos situation. Because if we can leave peacefully And securely, and our economy thrives as a result of having left. It will send a message to the others: you don't need to
0: be in this model anymore. You can leave too. I want to pick you up on immigration, though, because it is a big problem in Germany. Yeah. I mean, we saw in 2015 and 2016, literally queues eight people wide for as long as the eye could see, coming in to Germany. And when Angela Merkel said refugees are welcome. She became the foreign minister for 28 other countries. We had problems at Calais. And this does cause problems around Europe.
1: Um, for me, it's a management issue. Okay? I don't have problems with people wanting to move. If people choose to move, not because they're refugees, I don't have a problem with economic migration. If people want to you know, better themselves, why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't they move somewhere else? The problem with immigration is it's is, is actually the benefit system. That's the problem. You know, when my great-grandparents, and even my dad came over, my dad came over as a Holocaust survivor, my great-grandparents came over fleeing the pogroms of Eastern Europe, they weren't given a house by the state. They weren't given free education and free health and so on. They had to find a family to live with. They had to make their own way in the world. So you can have immigration but not if the state has to give, you know, is giving everything away.
0: Are you hopeful for a British future? And are you hopeful for a British future for Jewish people?
1: Um, you know, I often say to my kids, you know, when I was your age in London, there were two kosher restaurants in London. Now they're at 30. Is life really that bad for us over here? Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I just think British people are one of the most tolerant people in Europe. Um, I, I've never really, you know... I've never really experienced anti-Semitism, even though you know I've just had a thirty-foot swastika on my building. I don't actually think it was an anti-Semitic attack on me. Um, you know, I just think that um, it's very easy to be paranoid, um, and um, yeah, I, I, I just think that you know, after after the referendum, okay, I think the media dived straight in and attacked, you know, all Brexiters as being xenophobic racists and I think, again, they have a lot to answer for If you were a UKIPer okay, you might have had, uh, you know uh, not xenophobia, but immigration at the top of your list of concerns okay? perhaps some of those people were xenophobic, but yes, I would say that certainly the people that voted UKIP had immigration right at the top of their list At peak, UKIP only had 4 million supporters. 17.5 million people voted for Brexit. That means there are 13.5 million people out there that were more concerned about being in the EU where they didn't have immigration at the top of their list. Otherwise, they probably would have been UKIP supporters rather than Conservative or Labour supporters. I just think that this thing has been blown out of control by the media it's an easy story you know going off to you know far-flung Essex and finding somebody that's you know um you know perhaps ex or whatever but I just don't think that that is representative of the British people I think we are you know people over here are very tolerant and I don't think we have a problem with immigration it's just as I said earlier it's about you know do we have you know can we cope with the number of immigrants you know Why have immigrants, you know, immigrants have come here because we're actually very tolerant, you know, good people to live with. And I think think Britain is going to do brilliantly in the world post-Brexit and I'm really excited about the
0: opportunity. Wouldn't you rather have a political climate which had a broad church within the blue of the Tory party than in the slightly unknown broad church of the Brexit party? Well, look, um, I think Nigel Farage is,
1: is almost, uh, you know, sort of Margaret Thatcher in men's clothing. Uh, <laughs> so I think he is, uh, you know, I, th- I think he is uh, you know, I'm an old school... Trying, trying to get that
0: picture up my head for now. <laughs> he, uh,
1: he is a sort of old school uh, Thatcherite. I think he is a Conservative far more than Theresa May is a Conservative. You know, I think Theresa May is more left-wing than Tony Blair, quite frankly. I think that the Brexit party that Nigel Farage wants is a sort of more of a free market type, uh, I think it's more of a free market type, um, uh, pro-capitalist party, and Thatcher was able to bring the working classes over to the Conservative Party. She was the first Conservative leader that was able to do that, because capitalism is in everyone's interests, and the working classes saw that, and they understood that. Uh, They understood that if you have a mercantile class and a business class that's able to grow the economy, that's in everybody's interests. And that, I think, personally, is what the Brexit Party is about. But we don't know at this stage, because we don't really know that much about all the candidates, unless you go and do podcasts with all 70 of them. <laughs> uh, we don't know that much about all the candidates. Um, but what I do know, and what I can say, is in London, there are eight candidates in, in the London area. Three of us are Jewish. One is of Pakistani origin. He's half Muslim, half Christian. You have another sort of uh, Irish uh, descent Christian. Um, you have another black uh, Christian. Um, one, Sounds uh, like you 40. One candidate um, of, of Persian origin whose who's father was Jewish and he is Baha'i. Right. And, and an atheist. You know, you have this incredibly diverse mix of people uh, standing in London. And the one thing we know we all do have in common is that we are all completely peed off with the the way in which the political class has tried to stick this up, and they have, you know, ignored the democratic wishes of the people, and we feel it's absolutely fundamental that that you know that, that wish was, is carried out.
0: My thanks to Lance Foreman. You can be the first to see when a new edition of Johnny Gould's Jewish State becomes available by subscribing via SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify.